you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. It's also there in your worship guide. Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we begin a new series this morning on the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're going to be looking at a different commandment each week, and so that's going to take us 10 weeks all the way through August 2nd, uh, and then, or actually all the way through August 9th, uh, then August 16th, we will continue our study in Romans. Uh, now, one of the things that I've found, there's, there's pretty much one thing that uh, no matter who you ask, they know about the Ten Commandments, and it might be the only thing they know about it, and that's that there's 10 of them. <laughs> outside that, I, I have not met many people who know much about the Ten Commandments outside of the church. Uh, people know there are 10, but they don't actually know what they are. I recently read that people can recite, more people can recite these six ingredients in a Big Mac than they can six of the commandments. Uh, so I just want to see if that's true. So we have two, two beef patties, two all beef patties. What's next? Lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a, I mean, very good. All right, you guys, you know all those. Should I, should I see who knows the first six commandments? Um, uh, so that one was a little understandable because, you know, there's a fun jingle and everything to that. Uh, I couldn't believe this next one. Uh, the, a different survey showed that more people can actually name the family members of the Brady Bunch than they can name the Ten Commandments. So uh, do you guys know the members of the Brady Bunch? Marsha? Everybody knows Marsha. I mean, Cindy... More? Peter, Greg, I mean, you're naming them. What, what, was the, uh, what was the house cleaner's name, anybody? You guys disgust me. <laughs> like, like that somewhere in your brain, there's all that trivial knowledge that you guys know. Uh, but that's standard. I mean, but the sad thing is most of you weren't even born when the Brady Bunch was around, and yet somehow you still can name the family members. Uh, well, I'm going to make sure you know the Ten Commandments a lot better uh, than the members of the Brady Bunch. And so what we're going to be doing for the next 10 weeks, at the start of every sermon, we're actually going to recite all Ten Commandments together. Uh, so we really, each week, we're going to be pounding these things in our hearts and in our brains. And so if we would go ahead and put those up, and if you would recite these Ten Commandments with me, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Uh, you will find these Ten Commandments in two places in Scripture. We have Exodus 20 and we have Deuteronomy 5. Um, Exodus 20, uh, this is when the law was first given. It's when the Israelites were at Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 5 is when Moses reminds them of this law before they enter the promised land. And we are mostly going to be looking at it from Exodus chapter 20. And so that's where I invite you to turn your attention. We're going to look at the first three verses. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Pray with me. Father, we pray that through your spirit you would teach us from your word, that you would transform us to look more like your son Jesus. Lord, I pray that over the next 10 weeks our hearts would be changed. We would learn how we are to live, how we are to be fully human, how we can live lives that are pleasing to you. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we are in Alabama. We're kind of in the buckle of the Bible belt. So I feel like I can't begin a series on the Ten Commandments without mentioning Judge Roy Moore. I mean, you kind of got to go to Judge Roy Moore. If you remember back in 2001, he had a two and a half ton granite monument uh, of the Ten Commandments placed within the state judicial building. Uh, it's, It's not that it was that big of a deal putting the Ten Commandments there. There was actually already the Ten Commandments in that building. It was just on a small little wooden plaque. It just wasn't a two and a half ton granite monument put in the dead middle of this building. And along with the Ten Commandments being on that monument, there was also, uh, there was some quotations from the Declaration of Independence, uh, parts of our national anthem, quotations from some of our founding fathers, and it was all kind of fused together into one monument there, uh, which if you remember, it caused an enormous controversy. Uh, also a federal lawsuit. Uh, ultimately, it cost uh, Judge Roy Moore his job. Uh, after being in the courts for over three years, finally these monu- this monument was removed three and a half years later. Uh, and this event, it didn't just make uh, our local news, it made national news, and not just that, it was known all throughout the world. Uh, when I was, began studying really for the Ten Commandments about a month ago, I started listening to different lectures. Uh, the last three lectures I listened to, uh, one was from Scotland, one was from England, and one was from Australia. All three of them began with this. So there's a place in the United States called Alabama. <laughs> And they talk about what happened with Judge Roy Moore. And so it's a good place to start. I mean, they asked this question. They said, what was he thinking? What was he thinking in doing this? What was he hoping to accomplish? I guess another way that I would phrase that question is, what do you believe the purpose of the Ten Commandments is? Can, Can you just plop the Ten Commandments in in the middle of a courthouse and expect that they are obeyed? Should they be obeyed? Can they just exist, you know, stand alone? Or or can they only be understood um, in relation to something? Not that the truth is relative, but actually you can't understand the Ten Commandments alone. They can only be understood perhaps in relation to the Bible or in relation to God's covenant with his people Can they be applied alone, or do they have to be applied in that context? Can they be applied to all people? What should America do? It's a pluralistic society, but should we force the Ten Commandments on them? And then there's more questions, you know, sitting there in their courthouse. You can't miss it. So what happens if you break one of the commandments? I mean, what what happens? I mean, is, is there a penalty for breaking them? 
Uh, how many of you here have broken the Sabbath, have not kept the Sabbath, all right? The rest of you are liars, but I think, I think everybody raised their hand. And by like not keeping the Sabbath, I'm not talking about going to the lake on a Sunday or you know, mowing your lawn on a Sunday uh, because Sunday has nothing to do with it. The Sabbath is on a Saturday. So if you've done any of those things on a Saturday, you've technically broken the Sabbath. Uh, do you know what the penalty is for breaking the Sabbath? Death. That's the penalty in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, so should we enforce the death penalty now for everyone who breaks the Sabbath? You wanna say yes to that one? Uh, or what about some of the other laws that are there? What about adultery? Should we penalize people who commit adultery? Some of you are like, yes. Well, the penalty there is also death. Um, what about coveting? How can you even know who's coveting, yet alone enforce a penalty if somebody is found out to be coveting? So, so how exactly could you enforce these Ten Commandments if you even tried? Now, most people I found don't even think about these questions. Actually, a lot of times the people who are most adamant about putting the Ten Commandments in public places, they don't think about those questions. Usually they can't even name all Ten Commandments. Uh, but for them... The Ten Commandments, they're not of a practical importance, but they've become a symbolic importance. They mean something. It symbolizes something to them. But I want you to know that the church has never seen the Ten Commandments this way. Historically, the church has never viewed them as just having symbolic importance. Uh, we believe that the Ten Commandments have a lot to say about how we should live. They teach us who God is. They teach us who we are. They teach us what we should be doing. And over the next 10 weeks, I hope we come to see this and be transformed by it. So I want to begin by asking a couple of questions. First is this. Why are these 10 commandments so special? Or I guess I could even ask, are they? Are they truly special? Um, and then I want to ask, why 10 commandments? Why not two? Why not 10,000? Why, why these 10 here? After all, there are 613 different laws in the first five books of the Old Testament that we know as the Pentateuch. 613. Are these special? Why should these stand apart? So first, let's answer the question, why are these Ten Commandments so special? Are they different than the other 603 laws out there in the first five books? And I would say, yes. These Ten Commandments, they do have a prominent position within our Bibles. And you can see that just by the buildup of God giving these commandments. There's an enormous buildup to when God gives these. He frees the Israelites from slavery. He marches them through the Red Sea. He takes them to Mount Sinai, leading by a pillar of fire and a, a pillar of cloud. And then on the Mount, Mount Sinai, there's earthquakes, there's lightning, there's fire, there's smoke. There's people covering their ears uh, in fear, saying, we don't want to hear God talk to us anymore. Moses, you intercede for us now. And then Moses goes and he gives them this law. I mean, it's a huge buildup to these Ten Commandments. And then God actually writes them down on stone. They're literally written on stone, and we read, by the finger of God himself. Moses didn't chisel these initial commandments. They were written by God. And so we 
We certainly see that they are unique. None of the other commandments have such a buildup like this. These stand out apart from the other 603. So next question, why these 10? What's so special about them? Why not two? Why not 15? Why not 15,000 commandments? Can I just say, I don't have a great answer. Um, I've, I've been searching for a lot of answers out there and I have not found a great answer. I can only give you my best guess as to why we have 10. And my best guess is this, when God decided to write down his law um, using words, uh, then he had to take on all of the limitations of using words, of putting things in writing. Meaning that if he wrote too little, we would all be left with all of these questions. But then if he wrote too much, well, then none of us could ever remember them. He's trying to strike the right balance between actually saying something of substance, but also something we will remember. So God, he could have just given us two commandments. Uh, he could have said, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Those could have been the two commandments. And indeed, Jesus later, he would say that those were the two most important commandments. And that the entire law could be summed up in just those two commandments. That we are to love God and we are to love our neighbor. So why didn't God just write down those two for us? Well, what would you have done if you just read those two? Naturally, a question would have come up questions such as, okay, but how? How are we to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength? And, and how are we to love our neighbor as ourselves? So then God answers that question with 10 commandments. This is how. This is, this is how you can love God. Well, you can worship him only. You cannot make any idols. You cannot take his name in vain. You can set aside the day, the Sabbath, to honor him. How can we love our neighbor? Well, you could start off by not killing them. Don't steal from them, either their possessions or steal a spouse. Don't lie to them. Don't covet what they have. And so the Ten Commandments begin to flesh these things out, explaining how we are to love God and how we are to love our neighbor um, and most scholars, they think that's why we actually have two tablets. The first tablet is about loving God. The second tablet is about loving our neighbor. Uh, so that's why I think it's not just two, but we get to 10. But now the question is, well, why didn't he give more? Why didn't he flesh it out even more? And I guess the question there is, well, when would he have stopped? When should God have stopped giving out these commandments? Uh, do you know how many laws we have in America? Somebody, I would take a guess. How many laws we have? 10,000. 10, oh, you wish. It's a rhetorical question because no one knows. No one knows. The government does not know. So we have 20,000 laws just on gun ownership alone. 20,000 laws on gun ownership. Uh, in 2010, it was estimated that we wrote 40,000 new laws through different levels of the government. That was just in one year. 
In 2008, Congress actually wanted to know how many laws are there. So they set aside a commission for it to see how many laws there were. In this commission, they went forth and they did five years of research and they came back and reported to Congress. And the report was, we have no idea. We lack the resources, we lack the money and the manpower to ever figure out how many laws the U.S. has. And we're supposed to be, you know, the country that's most free with the least laws out there limiting our freedoms. So what should God have done? I mean, he could have given us 10,000 commandments to get us started. I mean, but poor Moses, can you imagine him trying to carry those things around like written in stone? How do you, how do, you do that? And then, you know, just imagine yourself at VBS, Vacation Bible School, growing up, and they try to make you memorize these things. I mean, no chance. You, you, couldn't, re- you, know, you couldn't read the 10,000, let alone uh, remember them. These 10, however, they get you on the right track. They point you in the right direction. And I think that's perhaps the best way to think about the Ten Commandments, is they get us on the right track. So when you think about the Ten Commandments, do not think of them so much as like a bunch of rules, regulations, trying to restrain you. Think of them more as traffic laws. They're designed to keep everyone moving in the right direction, to take somebody someplace safely. Uh, Actually, the word that we use for law is the word Torah. And uh, Torah certainly means law. It can also mean commandment, but it's more than that. The Torah has this idea of instruction as well. It's not just a commandment. It's it's this idea of instruction. Think of a a parent giving instructions to their child. Like, like Like me giving instructions to my daughter Natalie now who's learning how to drive. I'm teaching her how to drive. I've already taught one how to drive, and now it's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to teach Natalie how to drive. And, and when I come alongside and I teach her how to drive, I have to teach her things like, okay, when you see that sign, it means stop. Okay, when, when, when you are merging here, you need to yield and let them come in. You need to not go faster than the speed limit here. I teach her all of this, the laws that are out there, but the goal is to keep her safe and to keep other people safe so that we all can get to where we need to be. And I think the Ten Commandments, the law, is like this. It is instruction. It's keeping us safe. It's keeping us moving where we are supposed to be. And just think where we would be if everyone kept these laws, if everyone was on the right track. Uh, There would be no more killing, no more violence, no more abortions, no more crime, no more stealing, no more pornography, No more broken marriages. No more deception or false advertising. No more of always wanting more. There will be no longer any parents wondering who's going to take care of them in their old age. I mean, it would be amazing. Not just individually would it be amazing if you kept this, but think of an entire society. Think of the entire world if they all kept these Ten Commandments. Humanity would flourish. That's what God is setting forth before us. You want to know how mankind can flourish? How they could get to where I want them to be? To do what I want them to do? Well, they keep these laws. They're not restrictive. They give us a freedom and they help us to flourish. 
But they still, even after these 10, we still have questions, don't we? Uh, They don't answer everything. For instance, we know thou shalt not murder. Everybody knows that. And the word for murder, we'll look at it in a few weeks. The word for murder is actually unsanctioned killing. You're not allowed to do any unsanctioned killing. Uh, So apparently you are allowed to kill if it's sanctioned. But that raises all these questions. Like, who is allowed to sanction it? Does the government sanction it? Do we just put a small group of people to sanction it? Who gets to sanction the killing? And, uh, and what about war? Is war allowed? What about self-defense? Is self-defense allowed? That's not addressed in the Ten Commandments there. And so to get answers to these questions, you actually have to turn to the rest of the Bible. And so we have the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and beginning immediately in Exodus 21, those things are fleshed out in what, um, what we would call case law. So we have the law, and then we have case law, which basically applies the Ten Commandments to all different circumstances that we might be confused about. Um, and so we find this, you know, for instance, about murder. Is it murder? Trivia. Is it murder? If someone is breaking into your house and you shoot and kill them, is that murder? Anyone want to be so bold? Hundreds of people just put it out there. Well, yes or no. If it's nighttime, it is not murder. If it's daytime, it is murder, according to Exodus 22. Uh, now, we're not exactly given why, what the reasons are for what's, whether you can kill somebody at nighttime if they're breaking in your home, but in the daytime you can't. It's probably being with the ability to be able to recognize somebody or not. But the Bible lays out that certain case. All right, what about this one? Uh, we all know that we are to observe the Sabbath. We are to keep it holy. We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. So what if your neighbor has an ox that falls into a ditch on the Sabbath? Are you allowed to help him? them out or not? Who says we should help them? Well, y'all are like, man, you're not, nobody's, nobody's putting out. Yes, you can help them. Uh, case law tells us that we're allowed to help our neighbor if on the Sabbath they have an ox that falls into a ditch. You can help them get it out. Deuteronomy 22, Jesus teaches about it in Luke 14. And some of you are thinking, because I could tell her like, I wouldn't have guessed that one. I, w- I would have actually thought the opposite because I would have thought loving God, like keeping the Sabbath holy would have been more important than like loving your neighbor and helping them out. And granted, it, it's, it's kind of a confusing thing, which is why the Bible gives that scenario. It says, let me help you apply what it means to observe the Sabbath, what it means to love your neighbor. And it gives us that case law. All right, so what if it's not an ox? What if it's a dog that falls into a ditch? What are you supposed to do then? It falls into a ditch on the Sabbath. Do you help your neighbor or not? Or what if it's a cat? Do you just get a shovel? Just end it there? Like, <laughs> what, do you, what are you supposed to do in these scenarios? The Bible doesn't tell us those. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us. Or, or what if it's somebody's car breaks down? You're going to church and you see a, a friend of yours, their car is broken, they've blown a tire. Do you help them change that or not? It's the Sabbath. Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't answer every one of those questions. And that's where I think we go back to the law of love, loving God, and loving our neighbor. 
So we have those, the law of loving God and loving our neighbor. How is that fleshed out when we see these Ten Commandments? Well, what about all of these crazy whatever scenarios? Well, we have all of this case law underneath it to help us apply that. If the case law is not represented and there's some other areas we're just not sure about, I think we go back into that law of love. And I do think that we are equipped better than the Israelites are on this to figure things out because we have advantages that they did not have. First and foremost, the greatest advantage that we have is we know Jesus. We know Jesus, which is of enormous importance. It's an enormous advantage to know Jesus because Jesus personified the law. God did not have to limit his words when he sent forth his son. He perfectly embodied all of the law in a person. And so God did not have to set any limitations when he set forth Jesus. The word became flesh. And we could see how the Ten Commandments were to be lived out. So if you want to know how to love God, look at Jesus. You want to know how to love your neighbor? You look at Jesus. Do you want to know how to honor your father and mother? You look at Jesus. You want to know how to not murder and to, to give and support and support life? Well, you look at Jesus. He is the embodiment of the Ten Commandments. So we've been given uh, this enormous tool, this privilege that we have in getting to look at Jesus. We also have his teachings, which is another advantage. Jesus taught on the Ten Commandments. Uh, we looked at this two summers ago when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus went up on the mountain like Moses, and he presented forth his law. And a lot of what he said was him fleshing out the Ten Commandments. You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I say unto you that any man who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart. That is Jesus expounding on what it means to commit adultery. And he's saying it's not just the physical act there. The seed form of it, which is lust, is also wrong. Because that seed will grow into that full tree of adultery. And so we have Jesus' own instruction fleshing out the Ten Commandments. And then a final advantage we have is we have the Holy Spirit guiding us and empowering us to live these commandments out. Okay, so let's actually look at the first of these commandments. Now, we're not going to get through all of the first commandment because I had to do a longer introduction. We'll, we'll finish it up next week. But let me read again Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, verse 2 lays the foundation for all of the commandments that follow. This, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That, that's the lens, you will, that you need to put on, the glasses you need to put on to understand the rest of these commandments. God begins by saying, I am Yahweh. Your God. Now, whenever you have the word Lord, the name Lord there in all capitals, which is what you have in your Bible, um, that is God's personal name, Yahweh, which means I am, or I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or you just translate it, I am. 
So listen how God begins his commandments. I am the I am. It's the starting statement. I am the I am, your God. So right off the bat, you see that there's a relationship here. God doesn't just say, I am God. I am Yahweh, God. He goes, I am Yahweh, your God. This is a God who has a relationship with his people. He's their God. He is our God. And he gives the reason why he is our God. It's because he has delivered us from slavery. He delivered the Israelites from slavery. He has delivered us from a slavery to sin. Uh, the Israelites, they did not free themselves. They were in a situation in which they could not buy their way out, think their way out, work their way out. They were completely stuck in slavery, but God in his grace and his mighty strength pulled them out of that. And he became their God. In other words, Yahweh saved the Israelites by grace. Grace is the foundation of these commandments. God doesn't give 10 commandments and say, hey, here's some rules. Work really hard on doing these rules, and then I will save you, and then I will rescue you. It's the exact opposite. God rescues or he saves us first, and then after we are saved, he gives us these rules and says, this is how I want you to live. Now that I have freed you, I want you to know like these are the rules of how you walk in this new freedom that I have given you. So verse two sets the stage for all of the rest of the commandments. And we see that in this very, the very first command that follows it, which is you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You might have a footnote there. You could translate it as this. No other but me. No other but me. In other words, there is one God, and there is only one God, and his name is Yahweh. Now, at this time, no other religion was monotheistic. Um, I know that monotheism is so prevalent in our culture, it's hard to even imagine otherwise. Um, even what should be labeled as other gods, people still talk about in a monothe monotheistic setting. They'll say things like, well, we worship one God under many names. And they'll say, like, we worship God under the name Allah, or we worship God under the name Yahweh, or God under the name Jesus, like, which, which is hogwash. You're worshiping all these other gods is what you're trying to do. But monotheism is so prevalent in our culture now, it's hard for us to even think outside of monotheism. But yet it was revolutionary at this time. This would have been a shocking statement that there is only one God. There's me and no other. Because up to this point in history, all people in every place, in every culture, believed in many gods. And so they had no concept of there just being one so this first commandment here introduces monotheism, which, of course, the entire Bible stands on. Uh, John Dickerson, Dickinson, he wrote, Monotheism is not just the Bible's first command. It is its first thought, meaning you cannot understand the Bible apart from that. 
And we see here that the one true God in this very first command, what he's doing is demanding absolute and total allegiance. Now we're going to flesh this out a little bit more next week. But the reason that God demands allegiance to him alone is not because he's some tyrant, you know, up in heaven, just, you know, forcing us to do things. This is out of love, the deepest love. The language here is one of marriage. So those words, you shall have no other, those words were used in wedding ceremonies. So God is saying that he is entering into this covenant relationship with his people. He's becoming their God. They're becoming his people. It's, it's like a marriage together. And they will have no other. And that's what the Lord has done to us. He has saved us. He has covenanted with us. He is ours and we are his. And he says that you are not to bring any other person into this relationship. And he says, you know, don't bring any other gods. There are no other gods. We, we know there are not any real gods out there, but God knows we could turn a lot of things into gods. We could turn money into a god, sex into a god, power into a god, social status into a god, the need to be married into a god, the need to have children into a god. You name it. Whenever we try to find ultimate satisfaction in something else besides the true Lord, we have turned it into a god. That's what Connor did such a good job of walking us through last week. But God says, there will be none of those gods before me. You are not to bring another lover into our marriage. Imagine if you tried to actually bring a lover into your marriage. I mean, just, just imagine if you will with me. You know, like if you said, you know, hey, honey, I'd like you to meet somebody. You know, uh, come here. You know, this, this girl's name, this is... Her name's Cindy. She's really nice. She's wonderful. Um, you're going to love her, like, and she's going to be here. Now, you're first. I mean, I, obviously, you have all my heart, but Cindy provides some things like that you can't, and so I just thought we could all live together. I also met this other girl. You know, her name's Abby. Here she is, and um, I'd like you to meet her. Now, once again, you're first. I mean, my heart, oh, we are so connected, but Abby, like, you know, she brings a little something to the table as well, and so we're just going to be this perfect little marriage together. Could you imagine trying to say that to your spouse? That spouse would rightly be ticked, angry. God says, you don't bring any other lovers into our relationship. This is what we mean when, we, when God says, I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for your affection, and you will have no others in this relationship. I have been completely faithful to you, and you are to be completely faithful to me. That's the first commandment. There will be no others in our relationship. There is no other God. I am faithful to you. You will be faithful to me. God says I will not be shared. So this first commandment here sets the stage for all of the others. God saved us. God loves us. He cares for us. He is jealous for us. And he won't share us with anyone. And we are to keep only to him because he has kept only to us. And now, in the basis of that relationship there, he wants to teach us how we are to live. Pray with me.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and your passion for us. How you are a jealous God who won't tolerate other lovers because you want us alone. And I pray that we would not bring any other lovers into this relationship. That there would indeed be no gods before you. Lord, I pray for the next 10 weeks that we would learn about you and we would learn about us. And that we would learn to love you with all of our heart, soul, and strength and we would learn to love our neighbor as ourself. And we pray this in your strong name, Jesus. Amen.